Hey, this is Junior. Thanks for hitting play. Yeah, we all want to be happy, but what does it take to be happy? Ah, this is going to be so good. Hang with. So, Junior, you're in high school. Uh, history class was my last class of, of the day. And if you remember high school, that, the, that last class is like the, the hardest class to pay attention in, wasn't it? At least it was for me, because you're like 50 minutes from freedom. And so I'm just like, I, I'm totally checked out. And so my last class, history class, I would just, uh, I'd always sit in the same spot, back corner of the class, near the class clown, I'd always prop up next to him, and then just egg him on the whole time, you know, pass the time just, just goofing off. One Friday, though, was, was different. It was a uh, substitute had walked into our class, which for those of you who are teachers, you, you know how this goes, like substitute teachers um, are, are nice because uh, they come in and they just, you know, it's like you burn the class, like you watch a movie you know, or you just turn the class into a study hall, because that's what a substitute will often do. This substitute teacher was different, though. He came in, and he had a lecture, and it was fascinating. He brought a piece of history to life. I still remember sitting next to the class clown and him, you know, trying to, trying to goof off and me, like, shushing him and saying, no, no, shush, I, I, have to, I have to hear what this guy is saying. Like, this substitute teacher not only spoke with passion, like he cared about what he was talking about, but he was creative, and he made the content that he was talking about matter. Like I sat there thinking, like this is relevant to my life. Like that 50-minute class felt like five minutes. I wanted to stay longer and, and learn more. There's something about, something very special about a good teacher, isn't there? Like you, you, looking back on, on your own school, and you probably remember some really good teachers, because good teachers make all the difference. Now, a teacher will help you learn, and that's great, but a good teacher will bring the content to life and whet your appetite to learn more about that topic. In Scripture, Jesus is called teacher 45 times. People refer to him as a teacher. This is Jesus' primary ministry. Oh, Jesus did a lot, right? Healed people and fed people. This was his primary ministry, teaching. He would bounce from town to town, from synagogue to synagogue, often from field to field, and teach. And he was so good. In fact, Luke writes that at one point in Luke 4.20, it says, The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were, fast, I love that word, fastened onto him. Because he was captivating. When, when he spoke, he spoke with passion. He spoke with creativity. He would use visuals, as we've been seeing in the series. He'd use visuals, just point to something and use it as a visual. He, he told stories. He was funny. In fact, Scripture says he was far, far different than the other teachers of the law. In fact, look what Matthew writes. Matthew wrote, The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. He taught with authority. I grew up with a heavy Baptist influence, and so when I remember reading this verse as a kid, and I thought, well, this must mean like Jesus was like a fist-pounding, pulpit-pounding, authoritarian, angry preacher. But that's not what Matthew means by this, though. Matthew is saying Jesus just didn't just teach the law like the others. You know, law 44, thou shalt not. No, Jesus made the law applicable. When people listened to him, they thought, no, this really matters to my life. Here's how you apply this law. When people walked away from Jesus' teaching, they knew what to do and what to change because his teaching carried authority. 
It's one of the things I wish that I could. If, if I, people talk about going back in time. I always want to just go back in time and just listen to a sermon of Jesus's. But we do have the next best thing. We have a written sermon. And so we're going to do something fun today. We're just going to dive into a part of Jesus's sermon. Uh, sift through it. I love this kind of stuff. I think you're going to have fun with this too. Matthew chapter 5 is what we're going to be. Matthew chapter 5. I really encourage you to grab a Bible. We've got Bibles in the chairs. It's page 809 uh, in those Bibles. We also have notes. You'll see in your notes, there's really only one fill in the blank at the bottom, but we're going to be so, so content heavy today. This is going to be a different type of sermon than I'm, I'm used to preaching. Um, so I definitely have a Bible. It's going to be a lot, this is going to be a lot more fun if you have a Bible in front of you, especially today. And here's why. Uh, Jesus' sermon is going to feel very disconnected, as we're going to see today. It's going to feel disconnected. Many different topics. It's almost like, did Jesus have ADD or something? Like, he's talking about this, then he's on over here, then he's over here. Um, and it seems so disjointed. But there's this brilliant theme that's woven through all of these different topics that connects all of these different topics. And so we're going to talk about that, that common theme at the end. But I'm, I'm interested to see if you're going to pick up on that theme before we get to the end. Um, it'll be easier, though, if you have your Bibles in front of you. So again, very different sermon today. I remember sitting in a sermon meeting a few months ago when we were planning out this series, and one of the younger guys had said, let's just take, like a, let's take the Beatitudes and just like do like a recap of the Beatitudes, a sermon on that. And I looked at him and said, you know how difficult that is? That is really hard. And he's like, oh, no, we could do it. It's totally fine. So I made sure he was preaching this weekend, and he's been whining about it all week. Um, but this is, so it, here's what this, it's, it's going to be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. It's going to be a lot of different topics, a lot of different content. Um, but I, I, think we'll find this, I think we'll find this fun, and hopefully you can, you can stick with. Let me pray. We'll jump right in. God, I thank you for your word. I, I thank, you, thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the teacher that uh, he was, that he is. He's still teaching us. He's going to teach us today. And God, I ask that the Holy Spirit really work in our hearts illuminate this text to us because we need that, but also just to open our hearts for this. Uh, may we be honest with ourselves, have the humility to really understand where we need to grow when it comes to this, because all of us have some work to do on some of these things. And so may your Holy Spirit point that out to us as we go through this. God, we thank you for your word. May you remind us just of the weight of this moment right here. This is one of the most important things we're going to do this week, no doubt. Gathering together with brothers and sisters and hearing from dad. What an important and also amazing privilege that we have right now. And so God, may you, uh, may you remind us of, of this, this weight that we have right now, the seriousness of this. And uh, may you teach us. Please speak to us for we are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as we enter into Matthew chapter 5. We find ourselves on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. The Middle Eastern sun beats down, but it feels so good on our winter skin. A gentle breeze periodically blows off the lake, drying the sweat on our forehead. A crowd peppers the hill. Families who have made the trek here, families from all over, families who lived hand to mouth, families who rarely ever took a day off, but they took a day off to come sit out in the wilderness and hear the man down below speak. Above their heads, birds swoop, swoop around, swoop down, picking up the crumbs dropped from the kids that are running around with their mouths full of lunch bread, when all of a sudden the hush just falls over the hill. Moms shush their kids. He's about to speak. 
come sit, put more bread in your mouth, be quiet. And with a voice that carries over the hill, Jesus says this. He says, blessed. Now we're going to stop right there. I know, I know, one word in. But, but this word really matters. Uh, we're going to see this word over and over and over. And, and there's some Christian confusion about this word. So let's just talk about this word for, for just a second. The original uh, word for blessed in Greek is makarios, which translates as fortunate or happy. Uh, some translations, like if maybe you have a different translation of Bible, and your translation might say, uh, might have happy instead of blessed, which I actually like. Though many Christians don't like the word happy. Christians are, here's the thing, we're kind of funny people. Christians, for some reason, we love dichotomies. And so we'll say things like, um, and I've said this before, you know, we'll say things like, well, we want, we want joy, not happiness, okay? Happiness is fleeting, but joy, joy is here to stay. And so we'll say things like that. The problem with that is, is that's not how the Bible handles these words. In fact, if you read through the Bible and look at the original language, the Bible uses words like gladness, happiness, joy, and elation, and pleasure all interchangeably. And we call that a, a semantic range. See, the Bible does not vilify happiness. In fact, the Bible talks about happiness in a positive way. So I, I grew up in a, uh, a very strict, very strict Christian school. Great people who, who loved Jesus, but, but they loved rules. And sometimes I wondered if they had like a, a rule against happiness. And I remember sitting in chapel uh, one morning and a preacher came in, he's like a guest preacher, he came in to preach in chapel, and he walked in, and he was, he was dressed to the hill, right? He was, had like a suit and tie on, he had a Bugs Bunny tie for some reason, he had a big old Bible, and he just, he, he got up and he dropped the Bible like it's hot on the podium, and he said this, he said, God doesn't want you happy, he wants you holy. And I remember as a kid sitting in the chair thinking, oh, this sucks then. Like, I have to choose happiness or holiness? Like, a life of happiness, which would be fun, or a life of holiness, which apparently looks like a suit and a Bugs Bunny tie. It was like they thought the, the song, or the song, uh, if you're happy and you know it, repent, is what they, how this, they thought the song went. Now, to be fair, I, and here's the thing, I do believe that God's main goal for you and for me is our holiness. God cares deeply about your holiness, the, the thing of it is, though, is I believe true happiness is found in holiness. And so it's wrong to make this, like, dichotomy of, of saying, well, happiness and holiness are opposed. No, they're not. I, I, I believe they go together beautifully. So getting back to this word that Jesus uses here, happy, for, for some reason Christians have a vendetta against the word happy, and we try to separate, like, well, there's happiness, and then there's joy, and then there's blessedness. But the problem is the Bible uses the word happiness and joy and blessedness interchangeably. And here we see Jesus saying, here's how to be happy. Now, that's a great way to start a sermon, in my opinion. You know everybody on the hill just perked up at that moment. Oh, this guy's going to tell us how to be happy. Well, I'm in. Like, who doesn't want to be happier? Especially today, we live in a society that is statistically the least happiest society in history. And there's Jesus on the hill saying, here's how to be happy. And he brings us in, verse, verse 3. He says, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now right out of the gate, Jesus is attacking the age-old myth about happiness. And that myth is, uh, rich people are happy people. Or something millennials like to say, because they like to do things where you like to say, well, poor people are happy people. 
And both ideas are bogus. Jesus says rich people aren't happy people. Come on. And poor people aren't happy people. It has nothing to do with that. Let me tell you who the happy people are. The happy people are poor in spirit. Okay? What does that mean? Poor in spirit. Well, here's the definition. Poor in spirit is someone who embraces their daily dependence on God regardless of what they have. So it doesn't matter if you have a little or if you have a lot, or if you have somewhere in between, your paycheck, your possessions, your health play no part in this equation is what Jesus is saying. So whether they have a lot or whether they have a little, poor in spirit are constantly looking to God for guidance. I think about this with, with my, uh, my grandma, my mom's mom. Uh, my grandma was diagnosed with Alzheimer's a few years ago, and, uh, and, and it's sad. She doesn't know who I am anymore. She doesn't know who her kids are anymore. She doesn't know who her, my kids are anymore. She only really knows one person, and that's my grandpa. And, and if you ever spend time with, like, my grandpa and grandma right now, you'll always notice my grandma is always looking at my grandpa all the time because she knows she's 100% dependent on him for everything, right? He, he feeds her. He bathes her. He dresses her. He does her hair. She knows who she's dependent on, so she's always looking at him, listening to him, following him around. That's the picture that Jesus is painting of people who are poor in spirit. Someone who is poor in spirit is constantly looking at their Father in heaven going, I'm, I'm, I'm completely dependent on God. And so while the majority of the population is running around trying to hunt happiness, produce happiness, hunt it down, you know, happiness is in that next job, it's in that next partner, it's in that next purchase, coming up empty-handed every time, Jesus says, okay, why don't you stop that? Let me tell you who the real happy people are. They're rich, they're poor, they're in between, and they wake up every day and they say, I am as dependent on God today as I have ever been. So good, isn't it? And it's just the first beatitude. We have many more. Verse 4. It says, blessed are those who mourn. The Greek word for this is pentheo, which, which means to experience sadness. Luke writes, those who weep. Blessed are those who weep. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Okay, so the standard way of explaining this, and this is how I've always heard this, is uh, blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Uh, their sin grieves them because our our mourning over our sin leads to repentance. And so I've always heard this explained, and there's a lot of truth to that. Um, when I look at this, though, sometimes I struggle with it because it, based on the original wording and, and the context, I, I think there might be more to it. And so I just kind of want to spin this just a little bit. Mourners are people who don't disguise or run from their emotions. They understand that there are bad things in this world. There is death, there is crime, and they don't run away from those difficult feelings. They don't pretend that everything's fine. This is what I like to do. Everything's fine. They don't run from the emotions that they don't want to feel. Now, they're not emotional basket cases. They, they don't allow uh, their emotions to drive them. They just don't deny the emotions they don't want to feel. Now, this is, I, I don't want to broad brush right now, but this is a struggle for a lot of guys, right? Guys, we don't want to necessarily, we're not... Um, huge emotionally. We don't necessarily know what to do with negative emotions a lot of times, and so we'll just kind of put those away, and we'll just act like everything is fine. That is not mourners. A, a good way to put this, maybe to put it this way, denying the lows of life will rob you of the highs of life. But this is what we do. We like to deny the lows of life. We don't want to experience the lows of life. This is why when you go to a, a graveside funeral, 
We don't want to, remember when people used to put the dirt on the casket, ashes to ashes, dust to dust? We don't do that anymore. In fact, if you go to a graveside today, most of the time they have like green carpet over the, over the dirt because we don't want to look at the dirt. We don't want to, we don't want to, we don't want to experience that emotion. We want to deny that low of life. Um, hopefully I don't make any enemies here, but this is, this is just my opinion. You don't have to share my opinion. This is why I struggle with um, celebration of life services. A lot of times, I had, when I was in uh, when I was a youth pastor, there's a tragedy. There's a, a girl in our youth group, junior in high school, who died of brain cancer. Uh, just so sad. And her mom wanted to have this celebration of life service, which I completely understand. Totally understand that. My issue with that is though, is we have to mourn. This is really really sad. We have to mourn, and then we can celebrate her life. But we also have to mourn. And sift through those really difficult emotions. We have to allow her friends to mourn. And you have to, as a mom, you have to mourn as well. Now, I'm not against all celebration of life services. When my grandma passes, I'll probably do like a celebration of life service. Because we've already grieved. We've already kind of lost her to, to Alzheimer's. And so I understand that side of celebration of life services. But there's something about mourning. Many cultures have, have month-long month -long periods of mourning. No leaving the house. Because you have to sit in the house and... And, and sit in those emotions and navigate them. Most people today just want to like move on. Let's not talk about death. Let's not look at the dirt. Let's not talk about that emotion. I don't want to talk about that because I don't want to feel that. The problem is, is if we deny those feelings, especially like at a funeral, if we deny the feelings about death, we miss out on really embracing life. And this is, this is kind of what Jesus is, is getting at. It's a little bit like a... So seven years ago, my, my middle child, Nora, was born. Um, seven years ago yesterday. So we just, we just celebrated her birthday uh, yesterday. And uh, it was so cute. Last night at like 1 a.m., I woke up to crying in the house. I'm like, oh, maybe somebody had a bad dream or something. So I get up, and, and it's Nora sitting up in bed just crying. And I was like, what's wrong? Do you have a bad dream? She goes, no, I'm just going to really miss being six. <laughs> I was like, oh, you're... Your poor future husband. <laughs> Nora, I, I, I love Nora. She's, she's a miniature version of me. But she came at a very difficult time. Uh, when she came, my father-in-law was in hospice for brain cancer. So my wife, you imagine this, my, my wife was nine months pregnant, and she would lug our, our firstborn, who was like two at the time, uh, all the way up to Wisconsin to, to sit with her dad on, on his deathbed and, and just cry over him and then come back for her appointments. And then Nora was born, and Nora was, you know, like, new baby, right? Excitement and joy. And, and then we found out a couple days after Nora was born that she had a cataract in her eye. That's why she has glasses. And uh, so there was talk of possibly her being blind in one eye, um, having a lazy eye, need, needing surgery. And so there's many emotions that we were sifting through that. And, and I was concerned for Nicole, right? Nicole just had a baby, so there's like that postpartum stuff that I don't understand. And then there's mourning over her dad, who's on his deathbed. There's excitement over a baby, but now there's fear about the unknown. Is this baby going to be okay? And personally, if I were my wife in that moment, if I were Nicole, I would have emotionally disconnected from it all. I don't want to talk about any of that stuff. I just want to enjoy having a baby over here. And I would have tried to numb myself and desensitize myself to all of that. Instead, what Nicole did, what my wife did, is she experienced every high and every low. She rejoiced over a new baby. She cried over her dad. She's anxious at the baby's surgery. She, like, she lived in each moment, and as a result, Nicole came out of that season in a better position to experience happiness because she didn't desensitize herself to the other emotions. 
You see, people who mourn are people who face the difficulty, they feel it, they endure it, they become part of it, and as a result, they find divine comfort. That's what Jesus is saying. They find divine comfort in that. Jesus is saying, don't run from those negative emotions. Experience them. That's where you find the divine comfort. And then you leave that in a better position to experience happiness or blessedness or joy. Keep going. He says, blessed, verse 5 says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, we don't, we don't really tend to value the idea of meekness today much, do we? Like, nobody thinks, you know, when I grow up, I just, I just want to be meek. Or dads in here, if you, if you ever, like, talk with your daughters about who they should marry one day, which, which, which you definitely should, I can almost promise you, you didn't sit down with your daughter and say, honey, I really hope you marry a meek man one day. Nobody says that. Nobody thinks that. You know, we think, like, no, I want him to have a job. I want a little fire in the belly. Vision. Not like meekness. And here's why. Because we often think of meekness as weakness. Meekness is like some wallflower person. Meekness is like that guy who's whipped by his wife. You know, just like weak. But Jesus says here, no, being part of, ha- part of being happy is being meek. So why don't we talk about meekness maybe in a, a different context than we're used to thinking about it. Meekness is power under control. Power, but controlled. I think of it like, this is my dog. She's a mutt. You'd think with three daughters, I would at least get a boy dog. No. But she's, she's actually pretty B.A. She, uh, she would be a good hunting dog. She, she loves to wrestle. She kills so many animals. She's fast. She's strong. And my kids, when my kids are with her, they will lay on top of the dog. They'll, like, pull her by the collar around. They'll take her food out of her mouth. And her name's Luna. Luna will control herself. Never snap at the kids. Never bite them. Now, when she wrestles with me, she'll be very aggressive. You know, she'll put her mouth on me because she knows I can take it. But if my girls jump in on the wrestling, immediately she'll calm down and stop. She never puts her mouth on them. That's meekness. Power, a lot of power in the dog, but under control. Under control. Meek people, when it comes to people, meek people don't feel like they have to flex. They don't have to show off. Meek people don't have to be recognized. Meek people can have money without flaunting it. Meek people can be in shape without showing it off. Meek people can be successful without peacocking and rubbing it, rubbing it in other people's faces. Meek people can go to reunions. You know, when everyone's trying to one-up each other at reunions, meek people can walk into that and not need to one-up but shine the attention on other people. That's meekness. But there's another element of meekness, that maybe a harder characteristic of meekness. Meek people can stay in their lane. You know what I mean by that? We've all been given lanes to run in, whether it's a a lane in work, right? This is your project. That is not your project. This is your project. You can make these decisions, but you can't make those decisions. You have a lane in church, right? If you serve, like, okay, you serve here, but you don't serve over here. This is your lane to run in here. Every relationship has, this is your lane within the relationship. God entrusts lanes to us. Now, most people, when we receive a lane, most of us think, well, I'm underutilized. I'm far better than this measly little lane that I have. I should be making those decisions at work. I should be invited into those meetings. I'm better than my lane. I should be listened to more. This is how most people live, especially in our head. Meek people... Happy people say, all right, this is what God has given me. 
This is the lane. I'm, yeah, sure, maybe I could do more, but my power's under control. I'm going to rock this lane, and I'm going to kill it in this lane, and then if God opens another door, I will be ready to run in that lane as well. But I'm not going to force things. I'm not going to sit here and flex in my lane. I'm not going to try to get into another lane. I'm not going to flaunt my abilities. I'm going to stay in my lane. See, meekness is not weakness. On the contrary, it takes a very, very, very big person to say, my power's under control. I'm good with what God has entrusted with me. I'm good where God has placed me. I don't need to be something outside of what God has given me. And that idea is so countercultural because the popular belief, come on, you look all around us, the popular belief is that happiness is found in showcasing your strengths, showcasing your money, showcasing your pleasures, flexing everywhere you go. You just look at social media. It's all about flexing. We believe happiness is found in the flex. And Jesus, no, 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 no. Happiness is grown in a life of meekness. And that is so, so rich. He continues on in verse 6. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, if you write in your Bibles, circle or highlight or underline the word hunger. Like, notice the extreme use of language here. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who want righteousness. Blessed are those who like righteousness. Blessed are those who prefer righteousness. No, Jesus says, they hunger and they thirst for righteousness. There's this deep craving in them. See, today, we don't understand hunger, like true hunger. Because most of us have never seen it. Like, we, we haven't really even felt, oh, well, sure, we'll like skip a, skip a meal and say we're, we're hungry. We're starving. Skip a meal, you know, or, or we're dieting. Or maybe some of you ladies do those nasty juice cleanses. That, that, that's not hunger. During this time, it wasn't uncommon to run across somebody who hadn't eaten in days and, and doesn't know when they're going to eat next. See, somebody who's truly hungry, truly thirsty, it's all they can think about. Filling the belly, quenching the thirst. Everything you do is to satisfy that hunger. And this is, this is, the, this is the, the sense of urgency that Jesus is getting at here. Happy are the people who crave, deep down crave, doing what's right. Now, most people care about doing right here and there. Right, when they think about it, you know, helping this person in need, that was right, or encouraging this person, that was good to do, or helping the old lady across the street. Most people care about what's doing what's right, at least from time to time. Jesus says here, I'm talking about something altogether different, though. You hunger for it. It's all you can think about, what's right, day in and day out, what's the right thing to do. And that involves, this is where we take this a little deeper, that involves hatred of your own sin. Do we get so good at coddling our sin? Kind of make it into a pet. Yeah, you know, I gossip, but it's not like I killed someone. You know, I, I lusted, but it's not like I slept with them. Like we're so good at downplaying, excusing, and winking at our own sin. And Jesus says, oh, happy people don't do that. Happy people wage war with their sin. They hate anything unrighteous in themselves. Because they know sin is cancerous. Sin kills. Sin takes the enjoyment out of life. The happiest people are the people who wake up in the morning and they wage war with anything that takes them away from what God wants. Because to be right with God, oh, that is deep happiness. And by the way, our righteousness does not get us into heaven. I just want to say that because it's a big common teaching today. We get into heaven because of Jesus' righteousness. That's our credit. But Jesus says you're still supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness, though. Happiness is found in doing and living 
right. Very opposite to our society. Gosh, you look around at our world today, our friendships, people at work, our society has traded our moral compass for a happiness compass, haven't we? No longer do we ask ourselves, okay, what's what's right and what's wrong? What's the right decision? What's the wrong decision anymore? No, today we say, okay, what makes us happy? I'm going to do that. You do you. Do what makes you happy. You deserve it. And so as a result, people have taken their moral compass and they've traded it for their happiness compass. And everybody's doing what makes them happy. And statistically, that is leading to misery. Just look at our world. Tension and fighting and and confusion. Jesus is on to something here. He says happiness, a happy life, is grown in a life that craves righteousness. He continues, verse 7. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy. Another way to think about mercy is uh, relationally generous. Be another good way to put this. Happy are those who give people exactly what they don't deserve relationally. Happy are those who don't seek revenge. Happy are those who don't hold grudges. Happy are those who don't entertain bitterness. Happiness is grown in this life of mercy, of forgiveness. Now, this isn't the norm. We live in a society that's very easily offended today, don't we? Our happiness compass tells us, you know, well, you just get rid of those people who offend you. Somebody doesn't make you happy, you just get rid of them. To live a happier life, ghost everyone who rubs you the wrong way. Now, if God did that, think about if God did that, we'd all be on our way to hell. That's why Jesus shouts over the hill, happy are those who extend mercy, for mercy shall be extended to them. And that rings so loud today because there is an epidemic today, and I'm not talking about COVID, though COVID has made this worse. There are a lot of people, and come on, let's just shoot straight, a lot of us who are living with deep-seated bitterness and resentment. And some of it is childish. Some of it is our ego got hurt. Somebody posted something I didn't like. Somebody didn't want to be my friend. Somebody gets more attention than me. Somebody got that sale at work. And so we carry around that resentment, and we just collect it everywhere we go. And they live in our head rent-free, and we try to avoid them. Some of the bitterness we live with, though, isn't so childish. It's like legitimate abuse in your past. Or your spouse blew up the family. Or that parent just took off on you. And naturally, resentment sets in as your emotional bodyguard. And that's understandable. It's natural. There's just like that deep, real pain And Jesus here isn't taking your experiences lightly. He's not downplaying your pain at all. Instead, he's inviting you into a different story. See, Jesus knows, and deep down you know this too, that you withholding mercy, you holding on to this, is to push the self-destruct button on your life. Because truth be told, come on, you know this, they can't really pay you back anyway. I mean, you think about it. Miracle happens after church. You're walking out to your car, and your dad shows up and he says to you, I'm so sorry. I was not there for you. How can I make it up for you? You would look at him and you would say, You can't. You can't. We can't go back. We can't turn back time. You can't teach me how to throw a ball. You can't tuck me into bed. You can't undo making mom a single mom. There's nothing you can do. See, the reality is, is so often whoever hurt you, whether it's a boss, an ex, a friend, a business partner, Whoever hurt you, they can't go back. They can't repay you. They can't make your pain disappear. There are some things that just can't be repaid. And it's why Jesus stands on this hill with kindness, looks at these people, and in a way he looks at you and says, well, then I have an idea. Why don't you follow my lead and just extend mercy? 
you not doing that is just going to kill yourself. Jesus continues. And he continues with a phrase that has been so overlooked. This phrase in verse 8 is like the middle child. So easily skimmed past. But it packs so much gold. I love verse 8. It's like Jesus, it's like Jesus kind of baits the crowd in by, by saying, uh, would you like to see God? Would you like to see God? Like, would you like to see life so clearly that you easily could just recognize where God is at work in the world? Would you like to, to recognize God's plan for your life? You ever pray about that? God, please show me your will. Show me what you want. Would you, would you like to easily understand and see that? To which we say, yes, I prayed so much about it. God, tell me what you want. Where do you want me? I, I want to see you. And Jesus says, here's how you see God and what he wants. Verse 8, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, this is a massive, massive statement in Scripture. And here's why. I think we've all, we all could look back on like time in our life with regret. Like, you know, that season where we had some regret. That, that time in our life where we wish we could redo some things. You know, maybe it was a relationship or maybe it was a season where you're just really heavy into partying. Or maybe it's a season where you're just living selfishly. Or maybe it's a season where you, you got into to drugs. Like most of us have a season in our life where we look back and we think, you know, ah, I wish I could redo that. Like I, I don't know how I allowed myself to get into that. You know, why didn't I see that coming? How could I have been so naive? How could I have been so stupid to have put myself in that situation? Why didn't I have the clarity in that season of life to say no? Why didn't I have the clarity in that season of life to just walk away and, and get out of there? And I want to be as gentle as possible, but this right here is the answer. God invites you into purity. It's where you make your best decisions. It's where you live life to the fullest. It's where you're happiest in purity. See, sin muds up our life. Sin blinds us to our own selfishness. Sin clouds our thinking and, and, and messes with our judgment. Sin keeps us from noticing and seeing what God wants. Purity filters all of that out and gives us clarity. Another way to put this is purity gives clarity. Purity gives clarity. It's something I'm trying to teach my girls over and over. Purity gives clarity. Purity gives clarity. Because, again, this is a massive truth. It is so simple, but it's extremely powerful, and it's so easy to miss. Living pure gives you clarity in life. Now, again, this is not the norm. Most people in their hunt for happiness, they become obsessed with instant gratification. Hey, do what makes you happy in this moment. Regardless of whether it's right or wrong, do what makes you happy. And that clouds your judgment. Case in point, this is why a lot of people, and you probably know somebody like this or you've done this before, this is why a lot of people make absolutely stupid decisions when they're in love. Because they have all these feelings, these unbridled feelings, and it's instant gratification, and that clouds their judgment. They're not correctly evaluating the relationship. They don't have the clarity. And then when, you know, the feelings calm down and the dust settles, many couples will look at the relationship and go, okay, what did I do? How did I let it get this far? Well, there wasn't purity leading to clarity. This is why often when I, when I meet with people, you know, they're going through a difficult, like, relationship, and they're like, I just, and I can see they're struggling to evaluate their relationship. They're in a dating relationship. I always ask, are you having sex? Well, what does it matter to you? Because purity leads to clarity. And if you're not pure, you're not making good decisions. You're not thinking clearly. It's not just relationships, though. We could say the same thing about spending friendships, jobs. When purity is not valued, it clouds our judgment and we make poor decisions that lead to regret. 
Jesus' sermon is so good, isn't it? He keeps going, verse 9. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. For they shall be called sons of God. That's interesting phrasing there, isn't it? Why would Jesus say that peacemakers are called sons of God? Sons of God, that's powerful. That's a big statement. Why sons of God? Because through the cross, through the cross, your Father in heaven has made peace with you, right? Because of Jesus' work, you have restoration, you have forgiveness with your creator. We have peace with God because of what God has done. Now, when you turn around and you make peace with others, you are acting like your Father in heaven who has made peace with you. So peace is a big deal. But I want to take this another level deeper because there's a huge misunderstanding today when it comes to like what peacemaking is. Thanks to the Enneagram. Not a big fan of Enneagram, by the way. Peacemaking is not people-pleasing, Okay. A lot of times we confuse that. Peacemaking is not sweeping things under the rug. It's not letting people, you know, get away with things and walk all over you. That's not peacemaking, and that's not okay. Peacemaking is very, very, very difficult, very, very rare. Peacemaking requires cojones. Peacemaking, to be a peacemaker, will engage the tension Peacemakers, this is why I say it's rare. A lot of times we think most people are peacemakers. Absolutely not at all. Very rare are people peacemakers. Peacemakers will do the dirty work by confronting an awkward situation and a tense situation. And peacemakers will dig into the dirt and they'll talk about what nobody wants to talk about to get the real peace. Peacemakers will sometimes even start an argument on the front hand. Hey, we have to talk about this. This is not okay. We've got to talk about the awkwardness here. And they'll make things really tense. But like a good doctor, pain on the front end, that all leads to healing. See, too often, uh, many people, they, they, we run from conflict, right? Run from necessary conflict. That's really awkward. Walking on eggshells. I'm going to run from that. And we excuse it by saying, well, you know, I just hate conflict. I'm a peacemaker. No, no that's not peacemaking. That's just being a coward. Peacemakers engage the tension to find healing. That's what God did for us. He engaged the tension, took on sin, or took on skin, went to the cross, took on sin, stirred up some conflict, went to the sin, and then came the healing. This is how peacemakers live their life. Again, it's not common today, because in our hunt for happiness, we often think, you know, well, to be happy, you gotta run from conflict. Happiness is like absence of conflict. Don't have that conversation. That won't make me happy. I'm not gonna lead my family, because that just is gonna lead to conflict. But Jesus is not, nah, come on. Happiness has grown in the life of someone who engages those difficult conversations in order to bring about true peace. Gosh, this stuff is like from 2,000 years ago. It just hits us, hits us today. I love Jesus preaching. One more. Oh, are you finding that common theme that's kind of weaved throughout this yet? A little bit. Keep looking. One more. Verse 10. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It makes sense. But when you marinate and, and sit in this a bit, it can be so life-giving. And here's what Jesus is getting at. In this life, you are going to suffer. I know, so encouraging. Welcome to the bridge. You're going to suffer. But it's, it's true, right? You're, just, you're going to suffer in life. You're either going to suffer for doing the right thing, or you're going to suffer for doing the wrong thing. But, but here's the thing. You can only be happy on one side of that equation. You can be happy and suffer for doing the right thing. Because at the end of the day, you have peace with yourself, you have peace with God, and you're acting based on your conscience with a clear mind, making the right decisions. You can be happy 
being persecuted and doing the right thing and facing the consequences, but you cannot be happy doing the wrong thing and facing those two consequences. Now, happiness, happiness would tell me, hey, if you want to catch me, if you want to catch happiness, then do whatever you got to do. Instant gratification. Make the wrong decision if you have to get to me. Jesus says happy people can still be happy and go through something very, very difficult because at the end of the day, their head hits the pillow with a clean conscience and a clear mind. And people who can do that tend to be the happiest people. I mean, there's so much here. Jesus just like spitfires all this gold. Like we just, we just did like eight sermons in one. This is so rich. Well, what ties all of this together? What's the common theme we throughout these points? You see it? Any repeated words? Blessed. Each point was saying, here's what happy people do. And then he says, do the opposite of what most people try to do. Here's how you be happy. Do the opposite of what most people are trying to do right now. Each point. The common theme. You ready for it? This is in your notes. Common theme is happiness is farmed, not hunted. Happiness is farmed, not hunted. In this whole text, Jesus is telling us how to farm hunt happiness in our lives. You grow it. You grow it. You don't find it. You don't hunt it. You grow it. I grew up in Wisconsin, home of the hunters. And no joke, my school, that strict school that I went to, they were strict on some things, but not on others, because uh, us guys would bring shotguns and rifles to school during hunting season, and we'd, like, take them out and, like, check each other's guns and stuff at school. Small town, country Christian school, Wisconsin, different world. Um, but hunting, right? hunting's a big deal. Hunting's a rush. Carrying a rifle, looking for that buck, come back to your friends, ah, 10-point buck. Even if you didn't get anything, it was just, it was still a rush. Like, you lived for the hunt, the thrill of the hunt. I also grew up all around a lot of farms. Uh, that's less sexy, less of a rush. Plant a seed, water it, weed. There's no rush to any of that. Get your hands dirty, sweating, manure. Just a whole lot of hard work. Hunting is more fun than farming, literally. But also when it comes to happiness. Because the, ha- the hunt for happiness that we've all been on, it's a rush. New relationship. Ah, the butterflies, the excitement. Happiness might be in that new relationship. Bigger paycheck, better car. That's a rush. That's exciting. But fleeting. Evidence is all around us. Today we find ourselves in a society that is full of happiness hunters. It's written in our Declaration of Independence, right? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And everyone is on that hunt, coming up empty-handed. And statistically, as I said, we're less happy than we've ever been. Jesus says here, stop the hunt. Stop the hunt. Happiness has grown. You farm it in your life through these You farm happiness in your life through realizing you are dependent on God. You are poor in spirit, craving righteousness, extending mercy, purity, peacemaking. Stop this hunt for happiness. You grow it in a life of godliness. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings.